1978, five young men left the Yuba City area of California on a 50-mile journey to California State University to watch a basketball game. After the game, they stopped off at a small local store to buy some snacks. The clerk, feeling slightly put out as she was trying to close up at the time, served them nevertheless. It was to be the last time anyone could confidently attest to seeing them alive. Dubbed as the American Dyatlov Pass, this is the case of the disappearance of Gary Matthias. Though it bears only a small resemblance to its Russian counterpart, it remains just as much of a mystery. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome, Season 2, Episode 7. I'm Ben, this is Dark Histories. I hope you're all well. It's good to be back. This week we're going to be looking into a pretty obscure mystery that's been dubbed the American Dyatlov Pass by some, which, to be honest, I'm not really sure I, I kind of understand that. It's basically the only thing it's really got in common is a bit of snow, but, but there you go, it is what it is. This is The Disappearance of Gary Matthias. Yuba City lies in the northern area of California. A small valley city, it has a population of around 65,000 and it benefits from the warm climate. It sits at an elevation of less than 20 metres and surrounded by the mountains and hills of the Sutter Buttes, a small volcanic mountain range that rises to around 650 metres. Yuba City was home to the Gateway Project, a vocational rehabilitation group that aimed to help and support people with disabilities. Among the patrons of the Gateway Project were five young men, Bill, Jack, Ted, Jackie and Gary. The young men were close friends and played on the project's basketball team, the Gateway Gators. Hailing from Yuba City itself, William Lee Sterling was 29 years old. Born in April 5th, 1949, he was known as Bill to his friends. He was 5 foot 10 and weighed 170 pounds. He was deeply religious and often could be found reading religious texts. He had been diagnosed with mild developmental disabilities. Jack Anton Madruga was 30 years old and close friends with Bill. Born on June 18th, 1947, he lived in the nearby town of Marysville just two and a half miles from Yuba City. He stood five foot 11 tall and weighed 190 pounds. Jack was a high school graduate and had served in the US Army, though in more recent times had been working in Sunsweet Growers on a factory line. He was eventually, however, fired. Whilst he had no official diagnosis, his family believed him to have mild learning disabilities. He drove a turquoise and white 1969 Mercury Montego, which was his pride and joy. Jackie Charles Hewitt also lived in Marysville. He was the youngest of the group, aged just 24 years old, and he stood at 5 foot 9 inches. He weighed 160 pounds and had been diagnosed with mild learning disabilities, and he was best friends with Ted. The pair were often described as close as brothers. Theodore Earl Weyer, or Ted, was 32 years old. Born on May 26, 1946, he had attended Marysville High School. He was a friendly guy with a reputation of relentless positivity. 
He was outgoing and had been working in a snack bar, though his family had urged him to quit on account of the stress levels they presumed he suffered due to his learning disabilities, which he had been diagnosed for previously. He lived in another nearby town to Yuba City, called Olivehurst, that lay five miles to the east. Gary Dale Matthias was aged 25. He stood at 5 foot 10 and also lived in Olivehurst alongside Ted. He wore thick glasses which were prescribed for his poor eyesight. His family suggested that without the glasses he would be very close to seeing double. He was a US Army veteran though he had been discharged due to psychiatric reasons in 1973 while serving in Germany. He was later diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, a condition which for some time gave him many difficulties and had been known to suffer violent outbursts. Twice before, he had been arrested for assault. After his treatment, however, he had been able to control his outbursts and had learned to cope with his illness, though he was taking medication daily, morning and night, to help. He had gone for two years with a handle on his schizophrenia and with the outbursts under control had begun working part-time as a labourer for his father-in-law's small landscape gardening business. Whilst all five men had been attending the vocational rehab and had lived at home with their parents, they were still high-functioning and seemed to have been coping well with their various developmental disabilities and mental health difficulties. Both Jack and Gary had driving licences and all five men played basketball for the project's team and had a level of independence away from the care of their families. Together, on the evening of the 24th of February 1978, they piled into Jack's Mercury Montego and got ready to embark on the 50-mile drive north to Chico to see a basketball game at California State University. As he left his house, Ted shrugged off his grandmother's protestations to take a coat with him. I won't need it tonight, he told her as he joined the other four men in the car. Around 10pm that same evening, with the basketball game over, the five men pulled into a local store named Bears Market, three blocks from the university. They bought a Hostess cherry pie, a Langendorf lemon pie, a Snickers and a marathon bar. They bought two bottles of Pepsi and a bottle of milk and then they took off into the night. At 8am the following morning, the 25th of February, Ted's mother woke to find his room still empty. Concerned, she called Joanta Sterling, Bill's mother, who had been up all night waiting for her son to return, which she confirmed he was still yet to do. The pair phoned around the rest of the group's family and confirmed with all that none of the men had returned home from the night before. The men had missed their own basketball game with the Gateway Gators, a game which they had all been looking forward to for a long time. It was an important tournament for the men, and Gary had been reminding his mother about it all week. We got a big game Saturday. Don't you let me oversleep, he had reminded her daily. Understandably, the families were now quite concerned, and at 8pm that night, Jack's mother called the police to report the men missing. The police made inquiries, and on Tuesday the 28th of February, discovered the Mercury Montego. The car had been abandoned 70 miles east of Chico and northeast of Yuba City on a bumpy mountain road that wound up through the Sierra County mountain range. This was quite some distance from their route home. The car was parked by the roadside and abandoned on the snow line, 
unlocked and with one of the windows wound down. Around the car sat 11 inches of snow and by the roadside snow had drifted and sat between 4 and 6 feet deep. The only trace of the five men were the wrappers from the snacks they had bought in Bear's Market the night before, alongside one of the candy bars which was half eaten and left on the back seat. There were four maps in the glove compartment and one of which was a map of California. The car keys were gone, though when the police hotwired the car to see if it had had engine trouble, they found that it started first time. It still had a quarter tank of gas, and despite some evidence that the wheels had spun in the snow some time previously, it easily drove out of the low drift. Under further inspection, they noted that there was no damage to the undercarriage of the car, meaning that the boys had driven extremely carefully along the bumpy pothole-filled track before seemingly abandoning the vehicle and disappearing into the night, poorly dressed for the cold mountain conditions. The police made initial attempts at early searches, but the poor weather conditions hampered their efforts. At one point, it even became dangerous for the search and rescue teams themselves. After several delays and postponements, the searches were called off and ended fruitless. One week later, however, after the police and families had put out requests to the public for information, including photographs of the missing men, leads and proposed witnesses began to filter in. As leads from across the entire country came in, the police filtered through each one, unable to make any hard connections. That was until an account from one Joseph Shones. Joseph Shones was 55 years old and he had been visiting his cabin on the mountainside on the evening of the 24th of February. He had intended to take his family to stay in the cabin the following weekend and had wanted to check the snow line in advance. On his way back down the mountain road at around 5.30pm, his car, a Volkswagen Beetle, became stuck in one of the deep ruts on the road and during his attempts at freeing it, Shones suffered a mild heart attack. Thinking his best bet for survival and getting any form of help would be to get back in his car, he climbed into the seat, laying down but left the engine and heating running. At around 11.30pm, he saw headlights on the road below his car. In one account, given to the Los Angeles Times, he told of how he saw two sets of headlights, 20 feet behind his car. One was from a car and one was from a pickup truck. He attempted to shout for help, but the headlights went out and the group of people standing at the two cars left back down the road together in the pickup. In another account given to the Washington Post, Shones does not mention a second vehicle, but speaks of a set of headlights, a group of men, and bizarrely, a woman with a baby. Regardless, in both accounts, the end situation was the same. The lights went out after he called for help. Shones later admitted that he was unsure what he had seen, as he was suffering severe pain and was in a loose state of consciousness at the time. Later still, around 1.30am, Shones goes on to say that he had seen flashlights outside his car and a whistling sound. Again, he called for help, but upon hearing his cries, the flashlights extinguished and the group of people vanished. Eventually, Shane's car ran out of gas from running idle all night, and so he stumbled from the vehicle and walked eight miles to a cabin where he was able to find help and was taken to a hospital to recover. 
As he left his car, around 20 yards down the road, he walked straight past a 1969 turquoise and white Mercury Montego. To add fuel to the fire, a second witness came forth, also around a week later, with a sighting of the men. The woman was a store clerk at Mary's Country Store in Brownsville, 30 miles southeast of where the car was discovered. She reported seeing five men matching the photographs released by the police at around 2pm on Saturday the 25th of February. Jack and Bill, she claimed, were using a phone in the store, whilst the others sat in a red pickup truck in the parking lot outside. This story was corroborated by her boss and the police found her to be a credible witness. However, the families of the men doubted the veracity, stating that the behaviour, specifically that of Jack using the phone, would have been completely out of character as they knew it, as Jack's brother often had had to take responsibility for Jack's calls in the past. Such was his adversity to using a phone himself. Becoming desperate, the aid of psychic mediums were even called in to assist the police in the search. Some of the men's families didn't take very kindly to this idea. However, regardless, the leads from the mediums led only to a house that did not exist and a far-fetched tale of kidnapping which led nowhere. The investigation was left with nothing but questions. It was discovered that Gary had known some people in Forbes Town lying to the east of Yuba The police initially speculated that it could have been feasible that the men had decided to visit Gary's friends and gotten lost, turning up the mountain pass and becoming panicked. However, the families of the men hotly debated this theory, stating that the boys would absolutely not have done so with the big basketball game for the Gateway Gators coming up the following day. Furthermore, family members of both Bill and Ted told of how the boys hated the outdoors and had always stayed at home on previous camping trips and hikes into the mountains. And upon further investigation, Gary's friends in Forbestown stated they hadn't seen Gary in over a year. Yuba County Undersheriff Jack Beecham said of the disappearance, This case is bizarre as hell. As time goes on, foul play becomes a greater probability. It's hard to lose five people, that's for sure. But lost they were, and it remained that way for another four months, until one weekend in early June. On Saturday, June the 4th, a group of weekend bikers were out riding their motorcycles when they pulled up at an abandoned forest trailer park. Hoping to catch some time to relax, they were instead greeted by a grotesque smell, and upon investigation found a 60-foot trailer with a broken window. Inside, laying on a bunk bed and wrapped in eight layers of blankets, was the body of Ted Weyer. On the bedside table sat his ring, necklace and wallet, alongside a gold watch which was never identified to have belonged to any of the five men. He wore no shoes, nor were his shoes in the trailer at all, and his feet were badly frostbitten. There were a dozen empty cans of sea rations on the floor, some that had been opened with an army issue tin opener. Police estimated from his weight loss and hair growth that he had survived for up to 13 weeks in the trailer, slowly starving and freezing to death. The discovery soon led to more questions, however. The trailer park was 19.4 miles uphill from the abandoned car, 
which meant that Ted had had to walk almost 20 miles in snowdrifts of up to six feet just to reach the cabin. Though there were matches and ample flammable books, papers and furniture in the trailer, no attempt at starting a fire had ever been made. And even more curiously, a full propane tank that had not been switched on. All they had to do was turn on that gas, said Yuba County Lieutenant Lance Ayers. The rations too posed questions. They were taken from a storage shed on the park's grounds, however, in the same shed was an unlocked locker full of rations and food with enough stock to have fed a group of people for over a year, but it was all left completely untouched. One final puzzling discovery in the trailer was that of Gary Matthias's shoes, though there were no other sign of Gary anywhere to be found. Police speculated that it could have been possible that Ted took Gary's shoes, though they were much too large for his feet. Two days later, skeletal remains were found four and a half miles south of the trailer by the roadside. The bones had been scattered by animals, but were quickly identified as the remains of Jack and Bill. And two days following that, the remains of Jackie were found two miles from the trailer by his own father, who had joined the search and rescue team. His bones were again scattered and the preliminary identification was based on Jackie's Levi's jeans and shoes. Though the following day, Plumar County Assistant Sheriff discovered a skull 100 yards further down from the initial discovery, which was positively identified as that of Jackie by his dental records. Despite continued searches, no remains of Gary Matthias were ever found. Police put out descriptions to all the local hospitals and mental health facilities, but to no avail. If he was still alive, he had been so for almost four months, with no money, no identification, and crucially, no medication for his schizophrenia. To this very day, Gary remains a missing person, lost on the mountainside that tragically took the lives of his four friends. The case of Gary Matthias remains a mystery. Though a certain degree of closure was achieved for four of the men's families, the family of Gary Matthias has been left hanging for over 40 years. Outside of the outcome of the boys' deaths, there are still numerous questions remaining about the circumstances that led them to flee a car parked 5,000 feet up a mountain, 70 miles east of their last known location, and at least 30 miles from anywhere they had planned to be. Once, when Lieutenant Lance Ayers was asked what you do in a case like this, he simply replied, you do a lot of handshaking and a lot of drinking. One of the biggest questions that remains is how the men ended up on the mountain road in the first place. One of the most obvious theories would be that they simply took a wrong turning and that they refused to turn back. It can be fairly common in cases of missing persons that when an individual becomes lost, they will press forward rather than turn back, blinded by the false hope that salvation could be just around the corner and the daunting task of retreading ground you've worked hard to overcome so far. Criticism of this theory, however, runs deep. Locals have said time and again that the turning from the main road onto the mountain road would simply not be a route you could end up on accidentally, and it's often stated that you have to go considerably out of your way to get onto the road in the first place. Further to this, 
The men's own families stated they do not believe the boys would have voluntarily ventured onto the mountain road on account of their dislike of the great outdoors and tendency to stick rigidly to habits. Jack's mother Mabel said, There was some force that made them go up there. They wouldn't have fled off in the wood like a bunch of quail. We know good and well that somebody made them do it. Then there is the car. It was left unlocked and with a window open. The car was Jack's pride and joy and leaving it in such an insecure situation, voluntarily, would not have been consistent with his usual diligence. The state of the car too raises questions. The undercarriage was left entirely undamaged despite it being a low-riding vehicle filled with five men. Police speculated from this that either Jack drove incredibly carefully, knew the road well, or allowed someone else to drive who did. Contradicting this is Jack's brother who insists that Jack would never have allowed anyone else to drive his car. And all of this leads to the largest question of all. If the car was running fine, it was not stuck and not out of gas, why was it abandoned in the first place? Just who or what had been seen by Joseph Shones while he lay in his car, waiting for help? The men in the pickup, the woman with the baby and the phantom flashlight carriers. The men's parents again insisted that if the men had heard someone calling for help, they were sure they would not have ignored him. Car aside, why then had the men trekked a further 20 miles up a mountain hillside to reach the trailer park? And when they were there, why not make the most of the comforts? They didn't light a fire, for which there was ample equipment to do so, and they didn't eat the food in the trailer park locker that had been left untouched, despite evidence the men had been in the shed. Why not simply turn on the propane tank, in turn firing up the trailer's heating system? Whose watch was it that sat on the bedside cabinet? And why had the men seemingly split up and dashed off into the surrounding area, only to perish? Last but not least, what did happen to Gary Matthias? Only his shoes were ever found and no evidence existed that showed he had been with the group at any time. The case of Gary Matthias and the Uber City men is a tangled web of questions with little to no evidence. Police can't prove foul play was involved and yet, without foul play, nothing makes a great deal of sense. With very little media coverage at the time of the event and almost no solid answers, we are left to speculate on what may have been. Gary himself remains a missing person until this day and the case as cold as the snow that fell on the mountainside that fateful night that tragically and eventually took the lives of at least four men. <laughs>